The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And an highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask now that you would, as we uh, pause in the midst of our ordinary lives to pay attention to your word, we pray that you would pay attention to us. That just as we have um, sung of the, the coming of Christ, just as we've read the um, ancient announcement through Isaiah, that one day the glory of God would enter our world. We pray this morning that we would, uh, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the thousandth time, behold the coming of God in our lives. Would you meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder how you would finish this sentence. It's not Christmas until... It's not Christmas until the tree is up. Uh, It's not Christmas until we open up all the presents. I've told you already, I think, in our family, probably like many of yours, we have this uh, tradition as we get closer and closer to Christmas. There are, uh, it seems like every year, an increasing number of Christmas movies that have to be watched before Christmas. It's not Christmas until... Um, 
You know, last night we watched, it's not Christmas until Kevin McAllister uh, reunites with his family after destroying those bandits one more time. Uh, <laughs> it's crucial to our Christmas preparation. It's not Christmas until Clark Griswold gets all of those little lights turned on. Um, <laughs> I think for many of us, we would say it's not Christmas until we are with family. Even this morning, we've seen uh, family returning. I know that uh, some of you, many of you have told me um, next week you're leaving, you're going where are you going? You're going home, right? It's not Christmas until everyone is home. And um, that's really what this passage is about. Christmas is about going home. I know traditionally the third Sunday in Advent, the theme is supposed to be joy. But uh, as I read this passage more and more, I realized this, it, it's joyful. It's joyful, but it's about going home. This Advent, we've been looking at Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah 750 years before the birth of Jesus. The prophet Isaiah um, foretold the day when at long last the God of all creation would make good on his promises. And he would come, he would arrive, he would finally make everything right with the world. The glory of God would come into our world. And so over the past couple of weeks we've looked at the themes of hope and peace and today's supposed to be joy but we're going to talk about going home uh, because really going home is the story of the whole Bible and there's this, this pattern of exile and home that um, plays out throughout the story of, of the scriptures. Christmas is the time of year when we all go home. All the family comes back together. Maybe you've got family here for Christmas. Uh, maybe you're going home for Christmas more than, any, more, than it, more than at any other time in the year. Christmas is the time that we long to be uh, with family, with, with friends, with, with those that uh, we love. We never really get over that impulse to go home at Christmas. To go home is to be at peace, to be at rest with those that we love. It's, it's almost this primal urge. And Advent is the season of preparation where we prepare to celebrate Christmas. It's a season of waiting and of longing. And so it's appropriate in the season that as we remember uh, that Christmas is really about, uh, it's, it's appropriate in this season that we remember that Christmas is really about God coming into the world to take his people home. We live now, I think, in a world that longs for home. Uh, it's why we see um, just the prevalence of shows. Like, there's a whole HGTV, right? Uh, a, a million different ways to make your home uh, just perfect, <laughs> right? But we live in a world that envisions our longing for home being fulfilled in a very different way than what the Bible holds out for us. The hope of secularism is that God will go away and everything will be fine. That's what our world is longing for. But the hope of the gospel is this, that God will come and he will bring us home to live with him. It's a very different picture, isn't it? And so what we see in Isaiah 35 is what happens when the glory of the Lord shows up. When the glory of God shows up, the Messiah will appear and he will take his people home. So look with me first at what this passage tells us about homelessness and exile. 
Verse 1 says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like crocus. It's, it, this is telling the, the good news of this passage that when the Messiah comes, uh, the desert is going to bloom. But what does that mean? It means that now, it means that as those who eagerly anticipate the coming of the Messiah, we are living in the desert. We are living in the wilderness. And the human race is living in exile. Verse 7 talks about burning sand and the haunt of jackals, desolate places. We are living as exiles. We are homeless. And if we're going to see what it means for God to bring his people home, we have to understand home from where, home from, home from what? How have we lost our home? Well, the story of the whole Bible in one way could be said to be the story of what God does to make a home for his people. In the Garden of Eden, the opening chapters of Genesis, God creates a beautiful world and he creates the lush garden and it is literally paradise and Adam and Eve live there and they walk with God in the cool of the day and they are home. And then at the end of the Bible, it talks about what, uh, what our future holds for us when God will finally complete his work of redemption and all will be made right, and we will eat with him and drink with him, and we will finally be home. And yet in between, there is this crisis. There's a crisis. Adam and Eve, our first parents, lived in paradise. They were at home with God. God created this beautiful home for them, but they rebelled. There is a sense, I think, in, in which even that, that way I described um, secularism a moment ago, that secularism is about this desire that God would leave us alone and that we would be home. Uh, I can say this at this service because my teenagers aren't here, but there is something very adolescent about that feeling, isn't there? <laughs> I want to be home and I want you to leave me alone. <laughs> and that's what Adam and Eve said to God. We want paradise, but we don't want you. And the result for all of us is that we live as homeless exiles. The human race is spiritually in exile. Let me ask you, do you know what it's like to live as an exile? Many of you um, grew up in this country, but not all of you. Some of you moved here from somewhere else. Some of you have lived in a foreign country. Um, have you ever lived as an exile? Do you know what it's like to live in a foreign land? Ashley and I lived for three years when we were in grad school in Edinburgh, Scotland, and it was wonderful and it was horrible. <laughs> and um, Winston Churchill said the U.S. and the U.K. are two se uh, countries separated by a common language, and we experienced the reality of that for three years. I used to play this game when I would go to the grocery store where I would try to get in and out of the grocery store without anybody discovering that I was an American. And it's possible in Scotland because when people ask you questions, you can just kind of grunt and, oh, yeah. Um, but why, why did I do that? Um, because it's hard to live somewhere that's not your home. It's hard to feel like even the most ordinary mundane tasks are really difficult to carry out. I would be in the grocery store and I would ask somebody, where can I find cans of beans? And they would look at me like I was an utter fool. Be like, I'm just looking for a can of beans. I'm not, I'm not an idiot, you know? <laughs> and they'd finally said, do you mean tinned? 
Okay, sure, fine, that, that's what you call But just ordinary, the most simple, ordinary, mundane tasks are exhausting because you don't speak the language, you don't understand the cultural expectations, you miss the social cues, you offend people unintentionally. It's hard, it's exhausting. And that's what it's like to live as an exile. And the Bible is saying that that's what it's like to live in a world where we are separated from God. We are at odds with the world in which we live. Why? Because uh, Psalm 90 says that, says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God is our home. God is our eternal home. You were created to live with God. Here's the thing about home. Uh, We all know that home is not just about a physical building. We all know that home is not just about a place, it's also about a people. Home is about who you're with. The Bible tells us that we are at home when we are with God. Um, Home is about who we're with, the people, right? That's why many of you are going home next week. Uh, Many many of you have said, yeah, we'll be there, um, what's today, December 11th, we won't be there, this is the 18th because we're going home. What do you mean you're going home? Don't you live here? Well, we know what you mean, right? You, maybe you've lived here for 20 years, but at Christmas you go back to the place where you grew up. Uh, you go back to the place that feels familiar, even, even more than uh, the place. It's about being with the people. It's about being home, right? Psalm 90 is telling us that we were created to know God, not just as a distant lawgiver, but as a father, to experience being with him as our true dwelling place, our place of refuge. Isaac Watts, in uh, his famous hymn, put it like this, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. To be with God is to be at home. We were designed to love God. We were designed to live with him. We were built in such a way that the most delight that we can ever have is in knowing him and being known by him. And so to be separated from God is to be in exile. To be separated from God is to be homeless, to be without our home. Listen, you know this, to be homeless literally is brutal. It's brutal, isn't it? Um, Once or twice a week, I go to the post office to check the church's P.O. box, and most of the time, there's a man sitting on the bench in front of the post office. And I don't know where he sleeps, but he seems to spend most of his days there. And with all the compassion in the world, he is not in a good place, right? It's, um, it's destroying him. It's physically destructive. It's emotionally destructive. It's psychologically destructive. Being homeless destroys you. But do you know what's even worse than being physically homeless is being spiritually homeless? Because it's possible to be spiritually homeless and not entirely aware of that reality. You can live in a nice house and be professionally successful and be spiritually homeless, and yet you still know there is something deeply wrong with our world. There's still something deeply wrong with your life. And we live with this nagging sense that things are not the way that it, they ought to be. Julian Barnes is a uh, British author, an agnostic, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That, that clawing sense, uh, 
that something is wrong in our world. We are made to live with God. But instead of being content in him, the human race threw a fit and gave God the finger and said, you're not doing a good enough job. We're going to do things on our own. Now, our world is full of people who say, you know, I don't really believe in Christmas. Not really, not, not in the original sense of the term anyway. I don't believe that God came to earth as a baby. But, you know, it's an inspiring story. And so I celebrate Christmas because it fills me with hope and it's inspiring. And, and we've so sentimentalized, you know, Christmas. Um, we sing Christmas songs about the little Lord baby, uh, little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay, right? He lays down his sweet head. <laughs> um, you know, we think about Mary and Joseph and there was no room at the end. And we think, isn't it great that they're like rejecting corporate greed, you know, he's not going to be born in a chain motel or something like that. No, that's not. <laughs> there was no place for them to go. The only reason that Christmas is inspiring is if we understand what it means. This, uh, we sang already today, this, uh, what child is this? And this line just struck out at me. It's all about you know, on Mary's lap is sleeping. There's a, there's a line, nails, spear shall pierce him through. It's like a record scratch in the middle of this just very sweet song about the birth of Jesus. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York. He said, if you don't believe that God became a human being at Christmas, and, and you, you say, I don't believe in Christmas, but I find it inspiring, what does it inspire you to do? Have your children outside? <laughs> Like, if Jesus wasn't born in a manger for a purpose, what inspiration does it bring? Christmas is only inspiring if it's actually true. Christmas means that God has come to take us home. I remember as a kid, maybe 10 or 12 years old, I was so angry at my mom. I can't remember why, but I, it was so, I just, you know, it was fundamentally unjust, whatever was happening to me at that age. Uh, one afternoon, so upset and um, frustrated that I thought, I'm getting out of here. This is ridiculous. I don't have to put up with this anymore. And so I went up to my room and I grabbed my wallet that probably had my life savings of about $68 inside and I uh, left out the back door. And I got to the end of our driveway, which was only about 10 feet long. And there was a planter there, and I just sat down at the edge of this planter, and I thought, well, now that I've left, I don't really have anywhere to go. <laughs> and then I just sat there and stewed, and I thought, I'm going to show them. You know, why did I sit there once I realized there was nowhere else to go? Well, I think I sat there because I wanted somebody to come and bring me home and tell me that I was loved and wanted. And that's what Christmas is all about. God coming out to us. God coming to us to bring us home. So the second thing that I want you to see in this passage is that there is a highway home. What happens when the glory of the Lord shows up? Isaiah says it will be like a highway leading us 
to Zion, to the dwelling place of God. Verse 8 says this, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. In verse 10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. There will be a toll road, an expressway, bringing us back to our home, the dwelling place of God. What's it like to be home? Home is a place where everything uh, suits you. Um, when, I lived, when Ashley and I lived in Scotland, we had um, some friends who are, were Australians, the Stubbs, and they were like, I don't know, eight feet tall. And um, I would talk to him after church and I felt like I was looking at his like belly button or something. And um, after uh, we had been there for a little while, they, they remodeled their kitchen. And we went over to their house afterwards and they had put in countertops where they're like, we're remodeling our kitchen so it suits us. And their, their countertops were about my chin level, you know. Um, but it, was, it fit them. That's what it's like to be home. It's to be the place where everything is the way that it ought to be. It suits you. Home is a place where you can be at rest. Home is a place where you don't have to put on makeup. You don't have to try to look good. Home is the place where you are accepted, not because of what you do, but simply because of who you are. And Isaiah 35 says that one day the glory of God will break into this world and we will be going home. It says the desert is going to bloom it says that the burning sand, I mean, picture that image of the burning sand where you go to the beach in the summer and it's hot. But the burning sand is going to be like a pool of cool spring water. It's saying that the hostility of our world will be transformed. No longer will we be at enmity with the creation or with each other. All that is right will be made wrong. Isaac Watts uh, has another hymn where he, he like puts verses um, 5 and 6 to, to verse, hear, uh, hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. How will that happen? How will that happen? How will Jesus make this world our home again? At Christmas, God comes into our world to take us home. At Christmas, what we discover is that God comes into our world. God becomes homeless in order to bring us home. I hadn't really thought about this until this past week, the extent to which Christmas is about homelessness. I mean, think about it, why did, um, why was Jesus born in a stable? Again, not because his parents were like the original hipsters and they thought it would be a really authentic place to give birth, right? Uh, well, it begins with a census was being taken, so everybody had traveled back to their hometown. So what does that mean? Well, it means the place that Jesus grew up wasn't his home. His parents were on the road, and they come to an innkeeper, and everybody knew that his mother was pregnant before she was married. And the door slammed in her face. I don't know if you've ever been with a uh, pregnant woman who is going into labor, but it's a pretty intense experience. Um, and the door slams in their face, and Mary says, Joseph, it's time. It's happening now. And I imagine they just duck into a barn, you know? There's, 
It's better than being on the street, right? They didn't intend to be born. Uh, he didn't, they didn't intend that their son would be born in a stable. He was born on the run. He was born in a, um, in a barn, not in a house, not in a sterile environment where animals had lived, where there was urine and manure on the ground. And then he's born, and then immediately they're on the run from the government because Herod in his rage is killing all uh, newborn boys, and so they flee to Egypt. And he lives as an exile in Egypt, and then he returns. He's born homeless, but it wasn't just at his birth that he was homeless. Uh, both Matthew and Luke record Jesus saying, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He lived a life of, as a homeless man. And the King of kings and Lord of lords, the almighty God of the universe, comes into the world and he's homeless. And then when he goes to the cross, he is crucified outside the city gate. He's cast out of the city and on the cross he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's abandoned by his father. He was expelled. This is what Christmas is about. God comes to earth and lives as an exile Yes, to be with us, but also to bring us home. He comes to exchange places with us. That's how this takes place. Did you notice Isaiah says that he's going to build a highway? He's going to take us home, but verse 8, I love verse 8, says, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. It's like bowling with bumpers on. Um, <laughs> you can't get lost here. <laughs> God's work will be so complete and so thorough that you could never miss it, even if you're a fool like me. Now, you might say it doesn't seem that obvious that that's happening now. And what we have to understand, to understand the book of Isaiah, to understand the Old Testament, really, is that um, scholars talk about Old Testament prophets uh, looking at a, the vision of God's future as like looking at mountain peaks from a distance, where if you're on the, uh, let's see, if you're in, sitting in, uh, in Denver and you look west towards the Rocky Mountains, you just see what looks like a line, a ridge line of the Rocky Mountains. But if you go into the mountains, what you realize is there's peak after peak after peak. And what Isaiah foresaw, he envisioned as a one-time coming of the Lord. But we know that he's coming twice that he's coming twice, and so we live in this in-between place between his first coming and his return, and so much of this passage has already been fulfilled, and yet not fully and not completely. And Isaiah says God's going to build a highway, but nobody unclean can use it. So that's a problem for us. How is God going to bring homeless exiles into his house without us ruining it? I remember several years ago, uh, my mother had befriended a homeless man and um, was at least floating the idea, I think, for feedback to say, what, what, if we, um, what if we invited this man to come to our house and have Thanksgiving dinner with us? And my grandmother said, well, can we ask him to take a shower first? It's like, I don't know, good question, Grandma. <laughs> If God just shows up and breaks into our world and says, I'm bringing you home and everybody who's clean, follow me. Guess what? None of us are clean. But there are two words in, these, in this passage that give us hope. 
It says, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. The ransomed and the redeemed. It's those who are redeemed and ransomed who will walk on the highway of God until they are home. So what do those words mean? What does it mean to be ransomed or redeemed? Well, it means that something that has been lost has been bought back. I don't know if you heard in the news this last week that the U.S. did a prisoner exchange with uh, Russia on Wednesday. Brittany uh, Griner, Griner, I don't know how you say her last name, she's a female a basketball player who was arrested in February because she arrived in Moscow and she had um, cannabis oil in, on her person. And she was arrested, and I think she was sentenced to like seven years in prison. And last week, the U.S. government negotiated her release, but they didn't just, like the Russians didn't just say out of the goodness of their heart, you're right, this was totally overblown, and we're giving her back. No, they, um, the price to bring this perhaps unwise woman home was um, the exchange of Victor Bout, who is a Russian's, Russian arms dealer. And so what that means is that to bring an unwise woman home, the U.S. government was willing to release a thug, an evil man. Christmas is about ransom. It's about ransom. It's about God paying a price in order to bring us home. Jesus becoming homeless to bring us home. Jesus left his home, literally the home of homes. Jesus was with God and he was God. He lived in heaven in splendor and glory attended by angels and he gave up his home in order to be born in a barn to live as a homeless exile. Why? Well, in John 14, Jesus says this. In my father's house, there are many rooms and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna prepare a place for you and then I will come back and I will get you and I will take you home. We live in between that promise and its fulfillment, in between the first and second advent. We live in a sense between D-Day, the day on which the outcome of the war was fixed and V-Day, the day when the enemy finally gives up fighting. But we live now in light of what the future holds. We live now with hope because hope in the Bible isn't just, I hope one day this will come to pass. Hope in the Bible is living now in light of God's certain future. We live now in light of the future that Jesus will return and he won't just bring us home, but he will bring everything home and his work will be so complete and so thorough that no one will miss it. That's what this passage is telling us. So let me just, um, in a few minutes, as we close, ask the so what question. If that's true, what does it look like to live now in light of that future? How do we live now in light of Christmas, in light of what will be um, true when he returns to bring us home? Or, or we could put it like this. If we left home to become exiles... And then Jesus left, uh, Jesus became an exile to bring us home. What should that mean about the way that we live our lives now? So let me give you four implications. Four implications. So the first implication is very, very clear. Come home. 
Come home. God comes into our world at Christmas to bring us home. Come home to him. To repent is to come home. Christmas is not about pulling ourselves together so that we look good enough for God to bring us home. Christmas is about realizing how much we need God. And repentance is simply admitting how weak we are and trusting that we have a Father who welcomes us home. Uh, Do you know what the best Christmas gift is? I feel like about this time of year, um, Ashley and I have done some of the kids' Christmas shopping, and then Ashley and I look at each other and we kind of go, okay, are we buying each other something for Christmas this year? And we negotiate that. But then she says, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? You know what the best Christmas gift is? It's opening something up that you didn't know you wanted, and yet it's exactly what you wanted, right? Can you imagine living with the pressure of that every single Christmas? (laughs) But that's what repentance is. That's what repentance is. It's saying, God, all my life I've been trying to satisfy this hunger, this longing for something that is insatiable. And then Christmas came and I realized that what I've been longing for all of this time is to be home. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Maybe this Christmas you'll repent. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the thousandth time. Maybe you've been a Christian for years, but you're still living like you're homeless. You're looking for something other than God to be your dwelling place, and you need to repent. You need to wake up and see that you're trying to fill your life with things that only, and that only God can bring you home. Come home this Christmas. Secondly, um, very different implication. I think this means that we have to care about the homeless, the exile, the sojourner, the disadvantaged. If our God became homeless in order to save us, we have to care about those who are literally homeless. Um, This is one of the reasons why our mercy team this Advent is taking a collection and offering for the ministerial relief fund. It's not a direct parallel. It's not the only way that we think about doing that, but it's part of the way that we do this. We have to care for those who are sojourners, who are exiles, or widows and orphans. Thirdly, it means um, if we left home to become exiles and if Jesus left home, Jesus became an exile to bring us home, that means that this world, as it currently stands, can never fully be our home. Or to put it differently, once you've found your home spiritually, you can live anywhere. You can live, metaphorically, with a sense of homelessness. Uh, for some of us, that might mean physically living every, anywhere. That might mean God calling us to up and leave and relocate to another place. Part of our family's story is that God has led us to a lot of different places, and that's the story of God's people. God consistently and regularly asks his people to leave the places that we're comfortable to go to the unknown place, to a place that he's calling us to, and, when he gets, and when, then when we get there, he calls us to make it our home to build our home and to invite others in. And you know, some of that, that applies uh, to some of us physically, but I think it applies to all of us metaphorically. It, it, we all have to live with a sense of discontent in this world and yet make a home for others in the midst of 
the brokenness of this world. Some of us have lived in the same place physically our whole lives, and yet once we've found our homes in God, he calls us to welcome others home too. And so that might mean living in a larger or in a smaller house, or it might mean living with more or less. It might mean inviting people uh, into your home for a meal. It could take a lot of different forms, but that's who God's people are. We are people who are never fully at home in this world. And then fourthly, finally, if we left home to become exiles and Jesus became an exile in order to bring us home, then it means that the church exists as an outpost in the desert, a signpost pointing the way home for other exiles. That's who we are, and that's our role as witnesses in the world collectively. Leslie Newbegin was a, um, a British missionary who spent... Um, he left the UK in the middle of the 20th century to serve as a missionary in India, and he was in India for 40 years. After he left 40 years of service in India, he took a bus from India back to the UK. Imagine if you could even do that today. But when he got back to the UK, what he realized is that the, the, the United Kingdom had changed utterly in the time that he was gone, and it had become a very, uh, what was a culturally Christian country when he left had become a post-Christian pagan place. And, uh, and, and so he had fascinating observations about the role of the church in that sort of society. And um, he wrote this about Advent. Leslie Newbigin says, Advent means that something radically new comes to meet us, ready to break into our world and turn everything upside down. This is the Advent faith. The task of the church and the task of the leader in the church is to make this other world credible, to make it possible for men to believe that this world as it now is, is not the last word. To keep constantly alight in, in men's hearts the flame of hope and faith and the possibility of a different kind of world. We're a signpost of a different world. He continues writing this. He says, spiritual, spiritual renewal will only happen as and when Local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as signs, instruments, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. That's why we are here. The church of Jesus has found our home in him, and so we collectively live as an outpost in the desert, a mission, a signpost saying, God has come to bring you home, pointing other exiles the way home to our Savior. So let me just say that, apply that more particularly to Trinity very briefly. There is, I think, this sense that Trinity is entering into a new season. Uh, at our Christmas party on Friday night, somebody said to me, feels like Trinity is back, which is wonderful. It's beautiful. But I think what that means is that in the new year, in the coming months, we are going to have to have conversations where we clarify who is Trinity? Who will we be together going forward? And yes, of course, part of that question is who has Trinity been and how does our past inform our future? But we can never let the question about who we are and who we are going to be be dominated by what our preferences are. 
or by who we used to be. Let's keep this question constantly before us. How will we exist as an outpost in the wilderness? In 1995, Trinity began worshiping in San Luis Obispo because there were people then, some of you were there, who knew that there needed to be another outpost of the kingdom here in San Luis Obispo, here in downtown. And that's what Trinity's been doing for 27 years. And that's the question that's going to guide us as we think about who we are going to be in this next season. Friends, God is broken into our world. That's what Advent's about. He's the father who comes out to look for his wayward children. He is the victorious king who fights his people's battles. He is the baby, born on the road, born as an exile, the one who comes to bring exiles home. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you know exactly what you're doing. We thank you that uh, Jesus wasn't born in a sterile birthing suite, a way that not just kings and royalty are born uh, now, but most people in the Western world. We thank you that he came in the most humble way in order to reveal to us the, the true character of who you are. That though you are mighty and robed in glory, attended by angels, that there were no circumstances too humble for you to come to ransom us, to bring us home. And so God, I pray that uh, to whatever extent the story of Christmas inspires us this year, it would be the reality of what Christ has done for us. Not simply the presence, not simply the songs and the fun times with friends and the lights and all of that is great. But would you be at work stirring the hope within us of the day when he will return again? And until then, would you help us to live as your people, as an outpost in the desert, pointing to the greatness of who you are? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.